The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone. I want to begin by thanking our <coughs> folks who come early on Sunday nights to clean. Uh, I think Dennis was here early and Dick Jones and maybe Kenneth, I'm not sure who was who else was here early, but it's time, uh, anytime on Sunday after 6 o'clock, if you want to come early and help clean the bathrooms and the rest of the building, most of you know that we have a very, very small administrative staff, myself and Debbie Norgard, who work 16 hours a week, and everything else is done by volunteers. So much of what happens at the center is done by volunteers. We have some of our office volunteers here tonight, like Shelley and Patty, I know is here. And there are a couple other office volunteers, and I don't know, maybe 50 people or so who volunteer in an ongoing way to keep the building and the center operating operation smooth. So just acknowledging all of those people. So we've been looking at this experience or quality, mental quality of energy. And uh, such an essential part of our life, having energy, making effort, having energy. And uh, I think it's fair to say, speaking from my own experience and maybe from others, it's fair to say that we're, we don't know a lot about it. I mean, we think we might know a lot about energy, but Think about how much we complain around energy, you know, not having enough, <clears throat> too much energy, energy for the wrong kinds of things, no energy for the things we think we should be doing. So it's a, it's a powerful place to be interested, to bring this clear mind, oh, you know, this is how the energy is in the mind and body. This is how it feels repressed or bound up. This is how it feels quite alive, nimble, able to do whatever the mind asks it to do. Last week I talked about energy in terms of commitment and devotion. And this is just a particular way for us to explore this month as we're looking at effort and energy. The connection between uh, what we often call devotion. When we feel inspired or some kind of love or some kind of connection, how that releases a lot of energy. And this is true not just in terms of people, but you know, think about situations, situations in your life where, where instead of feeling connected, you felt disconnected. You know, you're driving home from work and the experience isn't relevant to you. And so you feel it's appropriate to disconnect. And your mind sort of shuts down in terms of that experience, or goes off, creates another experience. You think about the future, you think about the past. But you're disconnected from sitting in the car, being in traffic, what we're seeing, what we're experiencing in the moment. And, you know, we can learn very directly how disconnecting is inherently deadening. We feel deadened when we're disconnected, and we feel alive when we're connected. If you have kids or neighbors or friends, you know, just notice when you really intentionally show up for a conversation, really meeting the person, feeling connected, not with who you think the person is, but just connected in the moment, in the body, in the conversation doesn't mean it's pleasant because you may connect and realize you don't really want to be there. Or you may connect and feel like, I know what this person's going to say already. But we'll, be, we'll feel enlivened by being there even if it's an unpleasant situation. And then, you know, and then notice the other experiences where we feel justified in being disconnected. Oh, I already know what's going to be sad, I already know what this person's going to do. And so we kind of go through the motions, but we're really not there. We're planning something else or thinking about something else. 
doing her best to stay awake. So this is a, a principle we want to learn. Now, of course, it isn't easy for us to be connected because, you know, like so much of our life, it's governed by habit. So we tend to be easily connected when the experience, in a sense, tells us, oh, this is interesting. This is what you like, Mark. You know, and then we're, we feel like connected. Oh, our favorite TV show's on. You know, and we're like really there. <laughs> you know, our favorite food or, or something dangerous. You know, like we're walking down a street late at night and there's somebody else walking down the street late at night behind us. You know, and all of a sudden we're interested. You know, like, am I in danger? Is something going to happen? I pulled out, or I came out of the building, uh, it must have been Friday night, Thursday night. No, it was just recently, maybe Friday. And, uh, yeah, maybe it was after the Metta class on Friday night, the Loving Kindness group. And uh, so it was like 9 o'clock or whatever. And uh, just as I was walking to my car, police car drives into the alley, which is, you know, right next to the parking lot, you know, and the two police officers jump out and they're coming down the alley and then somebody steps out in the sidewalk and says, no, he's over here. <laughs> they didn't point at me. And then somebody else is sort of walking there and, you know, the police came running back and around the corner with this guy. I don't know if he was drunk or what, but something was going on. And all of a sudden I was very awake <laughs> and interested. You know, and it wasn't hard at all to kind of uh, be interested, to be devoted, to be in the moment. But we don't have to be uh, dependent on particular conditions to determine whether we're going to be connected or not. We can make a real art, a real science of being connected and discover over and over again the basic principle that when we connect, when we're intimate, energy follows. So we make the effort to connect, the effort to feel what we feel, to see what we see, to know what we know, and things come alive. And when out of habit we're not connecting, we're disconnected, we're in our thoughts, in the past, in the future, then we also we want to use those moments to teach us too, like how disconnected we feel how low energy. It's like if we don't like our life and we don't like our personality and we don't like the people we're around and we don't like our job and we naturally, because of the way our minds are conditioned, we just rationalize disconnection. We just disconnect. We withdraw. We distract. We deny. Well, that's probably clinical depression. That kind of... Uh, it's not the unpleasantness of our life that's, that causes sort of the, the sort of pervasive mental illness that we all kind of, some of us more than others, sort of fall into. It's that we start believing that uh, our version is rational. It's appropriate, you know, that when something difficult arises, that aversion comes up. But we want to realize that the aversion which leads to the disconnection, to the distraction, to the denial, that it isn't a long-term strategy. We, we don't want to believe the voice of aversion because it's like, it tells us, well, it's unpleasant, so you might as well, you should disconnect because it's unpleasant. Well, it's like we keep taking a step back from our life and pretty soon there's not much life there anymore or life energy there anymore. So this is why, you know, with a practice like we have here, you know, from the teachings of the Buddha, from our spiritual ancestors, you know, they, they basically teach in different ways about, uh, like, any moment will do. In terms of practicing connecting, any moment will do. And we, you know, when we come and do our formal sitting practice or retreat practice, we don't look for, you know, sirens and flashing lights and men in uniforms, women in uniforms to kind of cultivate interest. We use something really ordinary like breathing in and breathing out or feeling the body sitting or feeling the subtle movement of energy in the heart. 
or whatever else we might notice, the play of sounds, the pain in the knee, the feeling of coolness of the air or the warmth of the air. So in formal practice, we're specifically training in intimacy, learning that we can be, uh, we can connect, we can be intimate, we can open to any moment, to any particular experience, and feel enlivened, energized by that. We don't have, just because it's ordinary, doesn't mean it's not worth connecting to. Because the connection is good regardless of the particular object, a mental object, exciting mental object, a boring mental object, exciting physical object, a boring uh, physical object. The object is less important than the connecting or the intimacy, the willing to be wholehearted with the attention. Or, you know, it's really uh, one of the definitions of samadhi or concentration is the the coming together of attention. So instead of a dispersed, fragmented attention, the attention is coming together. And it doesn't really matter what it's coming together around, the inhalation, a distraction in the mind, pain in the knee. But it's the coming together of the attention and the particular um, shape of the mind as it's coming together. Like, is is the mind shaped by kindness? acceptance, interest, or is it shaped by, you know, striving or aversion or boredom? So some of the mental qualities are really wholesome in the sense that they're not, it's not a kind of a brittle mind state, a reactive mind state. It's a more yielding mind state that, that understands that sometimes things are pleasant, sometimes things are unpleasant that I'm not going to let the pleasantness or the unpleasantness of the present moment determine how I respond, how I connect. That I'm going to trust connecting regardless of whether it's pleasant or unpleasant or neutral, ordinary. Like connecting the value, it's like the mind has a value of intimacy that trumps like the kind of more primitive instinct to not like what's unpleasant or to want to grab a hold of what's pleasant or to ignore what's neutral. You know, it's fine that those habits are there to push away what's unpleasant and grab a hold of what's pleasant and ignore, pretend it's not there if it's neutral. But we don't want to just live on that level our whole life. We want to learn that we can connect even when things are ordinary, or when things are unpleasant, or when things, we can connect without attachment when things are pleasant. I mean, for those of you who are parents, imagine if you were only willing to connect with your children when they were interesting. (laughs) Well, I'm guessing, I, I don't have kids, but I have been a school teacher for a number of years in the past, and you know, they're probably interesting for the first couple of years, some of the time. And then, if we don't discover the, the inherent value and in intimacy, we, we're probably going to be lousy parents. And it's the same, I think, with intimate relationships. If we don't learn that just being intimate for the sake of intimacy is its own value, then we're just going to justify being disconnected. I see this arising in my relationship with my wife. It's like I notice a kind of uh, attitude where, you know, it's like, a, you know, where the mind, you know, I've got one of those sort of judgmental, critical minds, and it moves pretty quick, you know, and, and I can, I, it thinks, it sizes things up pretty quickly. So, you know, I kind of like in a superficial way, just sort of size up where my wife's at, and, and I'll just notice my mind justifying sort of disconnecting, not really being present. And it's not even that my mind is wrong, you know, like how it sized up things. It's just superficial, meaning it's like, well, this, this pattern in my wife may be manifesting. She may be in this mood, or she may be in this you know, funk, or she may be relating in this way. But that's not the whole picture. You know? That's just the surface manifestation. And like I mentioned, what makes the moment meaningful and beautiful 
isn't who she is or what pattern or habit is manifesting in her personality or even my habit or what's manifesting in my personality. What really matters is the degree of intimacy or connection. That's what transforms the moment. And so we have to learn that our conditioned habits, the way that we just immediately assess the situation, is based on a very primitive understanding. And again, this primitive understanding isn't totally useless. It's just limited and primitive. So we want to we wanna see it. We want to understand its usefulness. But we don't want to be limited by sort of our natural aversion to what's unpleasant or boredom with what appears to be predictable or ordinary and our habit, reactive habit to grab, to try to control what's pleasant. We don't want to be limited by that. So we you know, hear this kind of instruction or teaching and we get inspired to some degree enough to begin to explore the power of connection. Like to see, oh, I can take my life and I can sort of this life energy, this energy we have to do, you know, and instead of letting it sort of just flow into those three ways that I've described, ignoring what's neutral, grabbing, holding, controlling what's pleasant, destroying and getting rid of and hiding from what's unpleasant, we can take some of that energy and we can explore the value in intimacy, regardless of the pleasantness or unpleasantness of the moment. Just notice the value in intimacy any moment will do. And then just learning from our own experience, this value of intimacy, this value in connecting, being connected, being open, being undefended, being vulnerable too. So these just different ways of saying the same thing, being mindful. We begin to, it just becomes a value in the mind. It gets established in the mind. And it's easier and easier to make the effort. But initially, it takes a lot of willful effort to come to common ground or to sit in the morning or sit in the evening whenever you find time to sit at home, you know, to find the posture, to come back every time the mind gets distracted, to remember the instructions. Oh, yeah, what am I doing? Oh, yeah. It's a practice of intimacy. It's not like fixating on the breath. It's like the mind will want to simplify it. Oh, yeah, I just need to pay attention to the breath. But that's not the practice. The practice is developing this value of intimacy, of a wholeheartedness, abandoning this sort of uh, kind of striving mind that, that's always trying to control and fix what's unpleasant and get and hold on to what's pleasant and ignore all the things that seem predictable and ordinary. It's like going beyond that way of living and going toward another way. And at first, we don't have a lot of confidence because we haven't practiced much. So we don't really know if it's a value yet. We have to sort of do it blindly, like blind faith. We hear it, we read about it, we get inspired. Or we just become so convinced that the way our mind naturally or not naturally, but habitually relates, isn't appropriate, isn't satisfying, and we're willing to explore an alternative. So the Buddha you know, uses many maps. One of the maps he uses is uh, what it's called the four exertions. So when the Buddha talks about effort, he talks about you make effort in this way and at first, it, it sort of takes a, what is called in the Buddhist tradition a launching effort. It's like when you're getting a motor going, you know, you need a lot of current to get it going. Some of you who came in the summer when we had the air conditioning, you know that when the, the two units, air conditioning units went on, it's like all the lights dimmed. <laughs> it was pretty frightening. <laughs> Just there are some problems with the initial wiring with the new system as we, after we renovated, so we needed to do some, put some starters and other things in the air conditioning units and delay. So one started and then the next one started 30 seconds later and a few other things. But it's like you know the idea is when you, 
getting those condensers or whatever it is that moves out there, you know, that it's a drawing a lot of current all at once, you know, and it's not so easy. So this is what it feels like, just to get ourselves to the cushion or to our meditation chair, just to set aside the time, just to bring the attention back to the body. It just feels so stupid because our thoughts seem so much more interesting than being with the ordinary breath. I mean, what could I possibly learn being with the breath or being with the predominant sensations in the body? How could this be relevant? So, But you see, just that work to remember, oh yeah, but it's not about the breath. It's about connection. It's about intimacy. It's about learning how to be wholehearted. And actually, in a moment, we could be wholehearted with whatever distraction is predominant, or we can come back to our anchor. And there's a real art. It's not like one thing's right or one thing's wrong. Sometimes it is appropriate to return the attention to the anchor, to come back to the next in-breath and just notice it arising as a natural phenomenon. Sometimes it's appropriate to turn wholeheartedly and notice judging in the mind or shame in the mind or pain in the knee or hearing as we're listening to the sound of traffic. But whatever we do with the attention, it's really about uh, exploring, I think, basically a different value system. This value system of mindfulness or intimacy is what's a value. And everything else is put in, allowed to go into the background. And the only thing we're exploring is, uh, is there some value? I, I hear there's some value to being fully present interested in the present moment. So not just, it's not like a, a passive. A lot of times it's emphasized in mindfulness practice, this passive, kind of like we use words like being open. And it's because we're such doers that initially that half of the practice is what's emphasized, like just being receptive. But there's a whole active part of mindfulness that's equally important it's just that we tend to already be overdoing this other half, the active part. But once you get really good at the passive, the receptive part of, of being intimate, then to maintain it, you're going to have to amp up your interest, the active part of mindfulness, the active part of intimacy. This is true in our city meditation practice, and it's true in our intimate relationships or relationships with our good friends or family members. It's like sometimes what's off in our intimate relations is that we're not willing to be receptive, to just listen, to just receive the person. But sometimes what's off is we're receptive, but we're not willing to kind of engage, to sort of prod, to ask questions, to kind of uh, make an effort to understand what the person's saying, where they're coming from. So we're seeking understanding. That's an active part of the mind. Because you know how that is. You can be really there for a person, but you're not really interested. So like, how can you generate interest in the breath? How can you generate interest in your partner, somebody you've been with for 20 years? Really be interested. It's possible. And this is another part of intimacy is this assumption. And you, the assumption to check out, like it's a, it's a reflection is what we in Buddhism call Dhamma or Dharma, the way things are. That's what that means. Is Dhamma, the way things are, inherently interesting? You know, so that any moment, it doesn't really matter what it is, is inherently interest, interesting. The breath is inherently interesting. So if it doesn't appear to be interesting, it's because of the quality of attention, the kind of intimacy is out of balance. So it's so easy to assume, well, the object is inherently not interesting. There's nothing here to learn, nothing here to see. But one thing I can say with real conviction, and I'm sure a number of you in the room will support this insight, any experience will reveal everything there is to know. Whether you're the gateway is being mindful of an in-breath or an out-breath or a sound. In Buddhism, you know, this is just a conceptual map I'm giving you, but 
It's like a hologram. Any bit, any little bit of experience is the whole mystery. So in Buddhism, we talk about anicca, dukkha, anatta, that uh, experience, any experience, mental or physical experience, inner, outer experience, reveals the inherent empty or ephemeral or changing nature that because of the process nature of all things, mental, physical, inner, outer, there's really nothing there as a thing. Things are constructions of our mind. We have things because we have nouns. But everything is in flux, is in movement in a, in a profound way. And this is what intimacy reveals. That there isn't, there aren't things there like we conventionally assume. You know, you can just check this out. You don't have to, you don't want to believe this because that's just a fixed notion. You want to notice this. So this gets interesting. So when you look at the breath, the more the mind quiets down, the more the interest deepens, the more the silence and stillness in the mind deepen, and you're looking at the breath, the less you find. The more you just find space, like a free fall. And it's, it's, it's both scary and uh, mystifying and very interesting and liberating to discover this about the breath. You could do the same thing with a thought. The more you bring that kind of calm, clear, silent, profound interest to observing thoughts arising in the mind, the more you realize how ephemeral a thought is. I mean, it's not much of anything at all. What is actually a thought? Mostly what we notice is the trace of the thought. Like a shooting star, you know, you see the tail, you see the sort of visceral effect of having that thought move through the mind, the space of the mind. But do you ever actually catch a thought? So, again, I'm, what I'm pointing out is that the more we look, the more we just see these inherent characteristics which are mystifying and liberating as we get closer or more intimate with them. Dukkha is just revealing that any object where there's grasping is suffering. That we can create suffering out of any experience. When the mind contracts around an experience, it's dukkha, it's suffering. And so this is inherently interesting. You know, it's like we can go from a moment of like experiencing that sort of ephemeral quality of a breath and feeling really liberated, like, oh, everything's so light and ephemeral and perfect in a way. And then we'll notice we grasp that, like, oh, that's an insight. And then we start, we realize, oh, that's suffering. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just so interesting how suffering gets born. Just there, all of a sudden, it appears. The mind, out of habit, just kind of creates friction. And there's a, the appearance or the experience of weight or pain. And the last is anatta, like how impersonal everything, how interdependent, conditional, contingent everything is. It's all arising interdependently. You can't find a center to anything. You know, we think, conventionally speaking, we say there's a center to this mind-body organism or system, and I call that center Mark. But have you ever looked for your center? Well, I've looked. <laughs> you don't find a center. We just impute that there's a center there. And this is something we discover, any experience, we discover actually when the mind is really deeply honest about what it's experiencing, we realize profoundly there's no center to what's being experienced. Because it's the projection or the imputation of a center that allows for the concept of dualism, you know, me and you. But when we see the impersonal, conditional, contingent nature, that thought, that projection can't be supported. And then what arises gradually or suddenly is a feeling of wholeness, a profound feeling of wholeness as a sense of separation falls away. And the, the experience that it's okay, everything's okay, everything belongs, and there's no mistakes. 
So, you know, this is what making the effort to be intimate is inherently interesting. But we have to go through this thin veneer of our ideas that it's not interesting. <laughs> it's not relevant. Know this, been here, done this, you know, because that's what we meet a lot in our meditation practice and in daily life. You know, we just, because our life repeats itself so much, but what's actually repeating are our thoughts about life. You know, we go show up at the office or whatever our job is, and it's our thought, oh, this is the same job, this is the same situation, that is so boring. Our thoughts are boring. <laughs> you know, and so I see Kenneth, and I think, oh, it's just Kenneth. You know, well, that's a, it is a boring experience, my thought. The thought of, we have about people are boring because they're repetitive. You know, they don't change very much. But the person, the actual experience is very alive and unpredictable and unknown. It's characterized by impermanence, dukkha when there's grasping, and the empty, there's the empty of centerness of it, the conditional contingent nature. And this wakes the mind up. When the mind gets close to this, it's very alert. And those of you who've, who kind of open this door at different times in your life, whether in a meditation period or just in daily life, know the kind of energy that can arise. It's the same kind of energy that arises when you're walking down the street at night and you hear a strange sound that you don't immediately know what it is. It's like, the hair stands at the back of the neck. It's like every pore, every cell in the body is supporting the interest in being alert. You know how that is. It's like the whole system comes together. It's whole. Now, the problem with that moment is it's coming out of fear. Remember, I mentioned this at the beginning. So the, the wholeness is being shaped by fear, like a, am I in danger? Should I run? You know, should I pull out my... <laughs> whatever you've got in your purse or pocket. <laughs> your Phoenix. <laughs> but we can have that same wholeness being shaped by a kind of wholesome interest or love, like a compassion for ourselves. Living the life we're living as a human being, one way that compassion can arise is actually a sincere wish to understand more deeply this existential position we're in as a mind-body in this world. But what is that? Like to use the mind to directly reflect on this existential situation that every moment presents or represents. And that being shaped by compassion, being shaped by kindness, being shaped by fearlessness, by an interest in the truth. But that's that, the mind coming together in that way. You know, this is like real intimacy. And then we can have this not just in terms of meditation practice or spiritual life, or maybe making everything about spiritual life so that our relationship to work is really about this so that when we show up to clean our bathroom or to write the thing we need to write or have the meeting we need to have or whatever we do for a living or for work in our life, that we have the same kind of exploration. Like it's an exploration in truth. The truth of this existential situation, the truth of suffering and the possibility of release from suffering. And not just gross suffering, but even the subtle impatience and boredom and irritation and leaning forward into the future that we're plagued by. And we don't have to put up with that. And so we're, we're exploring the moment with that possibility that there may be a way to step beyond the sort of the ordinary drudgery of life, not, let alone the sort of more obvious pain and tragedy and difficulty in life. But even if we're not experiencing that degree of suffering, just the more ordinary, pervasive kind of suffering, that maybe it's possible to step beyond it. So I'll just mention these four exertions, and then we'll pick them up next week. But they're just four ways of channeling 
our effort to be intimate. And it's really about sort of taking responsibility for the ecology, the environment of the mind. And it's really, uh, it has to do with, you know, making skillful effort to abandon unwholesome states. So when the mind is, doesn't have the value of intimacy, but has the value of fixing and manipulating and getting rid of and holding on to and denying and ignoring, you know, those qualities in our mind, they're agitating, they come with tension, they come with suffering. And so it's skillful to make effort to abandon, to, over time to develop skill in abandoning mental qualities, mental states that are about, you know, that are, as I said before, coming out of fear, coming out of aversion, coming out of greediness, craving. So we want to learn how to abandon, and we also want to learn how to prevent these qualities from arising in the mind. And then we want to learn how to develop, support the arising of wholesome qualities, like I've been mentioning, like patience, and an interest in the truth, the quality investigation, and the receptive qualities, like faith or confidence and intimacy and mindfulness, or tranquility, like learning how to rest the mind in the present moment experience, not needing things to be other than they are. This kind of willingness to be tranquil, to be receptive, to be yielding, to allow the experience to have its effect, like to present itself or to reveal itself in the space of the mind or the space of the heart. And to maintain wholesome states that are in the mind. So you, you can begin this week to look at, it's like, the, it's a relatively easy thing to remember, so it's so commonsensical to abandon and prevent unwholesome qualities and to develop and maintain wholesome qualities. And the Buddha has this very potent little passage where he says, you know, if it weren't possible to abandon what's unwholesome, I wouldn't ask you to abandon it. But it is possible to learn how to abandon unwholesome mental qualities. We're not victims of what's happening in the mind. Or thinking that we're a victim is how we become a victim. There are ways to relate to the mind that cause unwholesome qualities to fall away. And there are ways to relate to the mind that support the arising and the maintenance of wholesome qualities. And I'll talk more about this, but just through trial and error, just through paying attention, we'll figure this out. It's not difficult. What's difficult is having the inclination to study the mind in this way, because we're drawn out into the world so much. We don't do this systematic study of our minds and the qualities, you know, kind of deconstructing and looking categorizing the qualities of my health. Is the mind wholesome or not? Like, do you know now, right now, whether the qualities in your mind are wholesome or not? Then we can just look. Are the qualities in your mind now that you want to continue to develop and maintain? Is that the predominant shape or texture of your mind? Or are there more qualities that you'd want to abandon and prevent from coming back? Is the mind yieldy, receptive, interested? Does it, is it enlivened, have energy? Or is it heavy, wet, damp? <laughs> you know, is it uh, tight or rigid, wanting things to fit in certain boxes? I'm for what Mark's saying. I'm against what Mark's saying. He knows what he's talking about. He doesn't know what he's talking about. I mean, those are both rigid points of view. You know, we can have more of an open, like, like, not like having to turn it into doctrine, but just let the mind be enlivened and just to kind of continue the investigation without having to come to a conclusion. Was the Buddha right? Was he wrong? But just to take up the investigation or the contemplation. So I'll leave it here. We'll, like I said, we'll pick it up next week. But we have 15 minutes. It'd be nice to hear from people about how effort has looked in your own life, what you've learned, questions about the talk tonight. What comes to mind?
And please say your name if you have something to share. Yeah, Jenny. The easy part for me is you know, recognizing when something isn't wholesome or when it is enlivening, you know. Uh, but it's that in between, <laughs> you know, kind of space out. And um, I think part of it seems like if you, if, if I try to keep expending the effort to stay engaged, to actually just kind of get tired. It's like, you know, if you're always on and you're trying to stay engaged, it, it doesn't, you know, it's not, that doesn't seem so wholesome either. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so it's, it's, it's find that balance to um, not get caught up in, in something negative, not get caught up in something that's really stimulating, being there in the you know, everyday part of a conversation still being engaged there, but not exhausting yourself by trying to stay engaged. That's the balance of that. Yeah. yeah, this is a really important point. I'm glad you brought it up. Because I think you're exactly right. And if, you, if we hadn't brought this up, I think we could have missed something important. Because like Jenny said, it is relatively easy when it's clearly an unpleasant situation going on. It's relatively easy to be interested in it. It's relatively easy to be interested and to practice when it's strongly pleasant. Because especially the unpleasant, but even the pleasant, generally we understand that if a lot of greed gets triggered, we're going to suffer. So kind of the awareness is naturally heightened. And it's harder work in the bulk of our day, bulk of our life, where it's more neutral. So the, the trick here is, like you said, if you force yourself to be mindful and to stay interested here, it, you get exhausted. So the trick here is... In these, and part of our day is when we're starting to get tired, then we switch the practice. So now we're not doing the wisdom practice of being intimate in this way. We're really cultivating um, the power of attention. So we're actually turning the attention not to what's predominant, but basically we're sharpening the knife. So uh, developing samadhi. So like in those moments, then you might need to just return to your breath. So you're there at work, you know, and, and you know, okay, the instruction is to learn how to value intimacy, you know, and you've got this pile of papers on your desk, and they're, you know, brain dead work, you know, and you just got to kind of plow through it. Well, instead of like bringing that wholeheartedness to this clerical work that you might have to do for a couple hours, you might just find another way to... Uh, to work with the mind, like you might do some breathing practice, or you might do some loving-kindness practice, so a real formal training for the mind. And so what you're doing is, instead of paying attention to what's in front of you, you're choosing to pay attention to something else that the mind has already got some habit energy around. And you're going to go through that veneer that I talked about before and open to some real joy in that, because your mind is is habitualized to do that in, with the breath, with loving kindness, with walking, whatever the contemplation, meditative contemplation might be. And again, it may be just a minute, it may be 10 minutes, just depends on what's appropriate in the situation. But it can really enliven the mind. And this is true both in our sits, like if you're working with something that's subtle and difficult in your sit, but it's really good work, but the mind might get withered and exhausted. And then you want to put it somewhere else for a while. Turn toward light, you know, if you have light in your mind, or turn toward uh, a pleasing object for the mind, love, the breath, sound, you know, whatever it is, and let the mind touch, uh, become intimate in that experience and feel the energy coming from that wholesome effort to be intimate. Then that will refresh the mind, and then it will be willing to do more of that subtle, not-so-easy work. And so there's an important thing to understand that when we can't do the work, we can't do the work. And then it's, it's time to um, kind of do foundational work. To, to like, well, what qualities would allow me to do this work in the future? Well, let me go seek out developing those qualities in the mind. Oh, the mind needs joy. Okay, well, what can I do to develop joy 
the mind needs energy. Well, what can I do to bring some energy into the mind? So there's a lot of like uh, being a gardener, a master gardener, and just understanding what the mind needs and being responsible to learn cause and effect. So, well, let me try this. Does this bring in what the mind needs? Does this restore the mind? The soil's depleted. Well, what can I do to restore the health of the soil? Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. Patty. Um, I guess, you know, on that topic, I get a little confused. Like, in a way, I feel like some of the things, I guess I don't necessarily have the wisdom it takes to understand when I need to persevere and kind of get exhausted by a repetitive thought pattern. Like, in a way, the return to it and the noticing of it over and over sort of exhausts me in a skillful way of, um, or I feel like it's skillful in that I, I become exhausted by th- that kind of thought pattern when I notice it so much. And it's sort of good to feel um, that that thought isn't helpful. And I guess I'm confused by when to persevere with a certain kind of meditation practice and when to jump to another. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't think there's an easy answer. And you'll learn. You know, and it, what, Or the easy answer is you have to see what's coloring the mind. So when you feel motivated to go somewhere else, do some other technique, then you, you want to notice, is that, being, is that intention to go to this technique, is that coming out of fear? aversion, greed, or is it coming out of wisdom or compassion? So you have to look. But you won't always know. I said it's easy, but it's not easy to know. But you'll know in hindsight later. Like if you always go away, eventually it's going to dawn in the mind, oh, I'm just running from what's difficult. I need to stay put. Well, you stay put and you kind of beat your brain into, or beat your mind into sort of a kind of depressed or kind of dry, despairing qualities in the mind. Well, then eventually you will dawn that I'm just sticking with, I'm just beating this dead mind to the ground because I'm afraid of sort of being creative. I'm afraid of taking responsibility and trying something, even if I make mistakes. Like a brightness? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the, the, the key is to... There should be a nimbleness. So we're not dependent on not changing, and we're not dependent on changing. And so that we can imagine, so if we're always doing one, then maybe it's actually good to try to do the other. Like if we're always staying put, then it might be good to explore trying something else sometimes. Or if we're always trying some other things, then it might be good just to stay put. You know, a lot of people get the answer by talking to a teacher, but in the end, we have to learn how to be self-reliant. We have to learn how to assess what's going on in the mind and learn from our mistakes and our successes. And have we correctly assessed the qualities in the mind, the intentions, the skillfulness or the not-so-skillfulness of the intentions in the mind? And, you know, we, we learn a lot from reflecting and reflecting in hindsight, too. Like, was that skillful? Did that seem to help? staying put or moving away. Like, did we actually staying put, did it actually lead to seeing something we haven't seen before? Oh, I don't need to be afraid of this mind state. There is light at the end of the tunnel, just persevering with it. Or did we not learn that? Did we learn that, you know, the more I stayed with it, the more I believed the thought, the more I got caught by it, because I I didn't have enough energy to have space around it. I lost the spaciousness. I lost perspective. I got attached, and it kind of took over. I got lost in it. Because that happens too. Sometimes we persevere right from having some space, some perspective. It's just a thought, just emotion, to just proliferation. You know, we're just thinking and totally lost in, our, in the content of the thought. But that doesn't help us if that's all we're doing. If that's what our strategy leads to, then we don't want to reinforce that. We want to try something else. Even if it doesn't work, at least we're exploring, you know, and at least we're feeling empowered to try different things. And that's a good attitude, quality to have in the mind, this, this feeling like we can figure it out. And it's okay to make mistakes, but we'll figure it out. Because we understand the basic kind of barometer, like is the mind getting more contracted or more free? Are we feeling more burdened or less burdened? 
Jude, did you have a thought? Well, how do you see that free association uh, coming into this? What's your connection? Here's my sense of it. It'd be nice, maybe other people have other thoughts or experiences with this, but this, the, the way the mind and body seems to be moving or unfolding is always lawfully. There's nothing kind of unlawful about how things unfold, how things arise and, and pass away. So even though a thought may seem really creative, uh, even though there are, there are these trains of thought or patterns of association, there are probably many of them happening, not necessarily at the same time, but kind of in overlapping ways. Some subtle trains of thought, some more gross trains of thought. And so instead of just like one linear, obvious, one thought leading to another, it's, that's probably way too simplistic of a model of the mind. So when a thought comes up, like, oh, like, especially with a lot of light, a lot of brightness in the mind, it, the, when the mind isn't being constrained and there's, there's kind of a, a more receptive and uh, sort of wholesome interest, receptive quality in the mind, then these patterns, the patterns of the mind and, the, of course, the patterns of the body are allowed to just move. Like when we're really present with the body but not fixated in a way, the energy of the body is also allowed to move. And so you, you can get profound releases of subtle holding in the body that just happen seemingly out of nowhere because we weren't realizing that we were holding. And then the body sort of relaxes something it didn't even realize it was holding. And all of a sudden, this whole energetic pattern of tension can release itself. And it's the same in the mind. And then, the, but in the mind, the way that release manifests is like the mind is reorganized the way it thinks about this relationship. And all of a sudden, we've got a plan. But we didn't see all the different subtle mechanisms that led to that reorganization of thought and the conclusion, the seeming conclusion. That's just the, net, the one step in this sort of very complex unwinding or reorganization that happened because the mind relaxed. And the different thought streams, whatever, you know, they just reorganize themselves because they weren't being held due to our habits of fixating things or tightening things. Uh, Charlotte, did you have a thought? It's got to be somewhat quick. A little louder, maybe. The important thing to say, you know, in just a minute, and, and maybe bring it up again, because it's important, is that just to normalize this, because so much of our unconscious life strategies is to keep things bottled up, like to avoid making a mess. And this is not just on the surface of our life in terms of our relations and our jobs, but emotionally too. It's like if we keep moving quickly enough, it's like the old pain, the old fear, the old confusion. It will, will be one step ahead of it. But as we learn, this, as we reinforce and develop the value of intimacy, it, intimacy requires being undefended. And it requires 
trusting everything that's moving to move. And so when we naturally uh, come up upon unfinished emotional business movement, it's, you know, it's going to move. And it can uh, sometimes seem really inappropriate, like um, Eric will say something. But in that moment, it's like you've just uncovered a volcano. It doesn't have anything to do with what your partner has said to you or the person at work has said to you. But it's like you can't avoid responding from that energy. You know, and you might say the, the right thing, but it's just like so charged because you've got so much energy there on the surface of your life. And so it is a little messy. But, you know, we get skillful at dealing with a lot of energy and learning how to kind of take care of ourselves, like to disappear when we need to. And what you'll find is, you know, you hit little pockets and there's like a lot of release, but that won't necessarily last for a long time unless you avoid feeling it. So the best deal is to find a, a moment where you can just, in a sense, lie down and let the emotion move and keep going. But if we keep running from it, like, I can't have this in my life, I'm too busy. <laughs> well, then, it, in a way, it never gets a chance to express itself. And it's like always there. You know, it can be there for days. So when a lot of terror, a lot of fear, a lot of irritation, agitation comes up, uh, if you can't find a quiet and safe place, time, to just, in a comfortable way, so you don't need to use a sitting posture, you can just lie down. But to in a profound way invite in like say yes you have permission to do whatever you need to do I trust intimacy I trust mindfulness that this is not dangerous that whatever has arisen isn't dangerous which dangerous is to avoid feeling what I'm feeling or seeing what I'm seeing and generally speaking you know the way things unfold it always seems like it might be too much but generally we have the wisdom to handle what comes up, you know, especially if you if you have a history of being, uh, you know, uh, of, of that sort of being overwhelmed by emotion in your life. If you have a history of being overwhelmed and sort of getting in emotional pockets that have taken uh, medication or a lot of time to get out of then maybe we could talk more, you could talk to somebody more about how to work with the strong emotions. But this is normal for any serious practitioner, not consistently, constantly, but in periods of your life. life. It's got to be real quick, Tom, we're over a couple minutes already. I think it would be. Sylvia Bordenstein talking about patience brings up a situation that took 10 years to resolve. Yeah. She says in her body, See what she says is a little bit different than what you're saying, that you've got to pursue it, you can't just let it go. It's not like she's saying, you let it go and be patient, and it may resolve itself in a week, and it may resolve itself in two years. Right, right. right. So I just, it's a little bit different than what you're saying. You're saying you've got to go to you can't just let it go. I don't think I said that. I think when it's up, you have to you have to be honest when it's up. That uh, that's been my experience. That some things have taken many many years, but uh, it's like it's like there's it's like uh, you're it's a mining operation, and you know you get a little pocket and that, but you don't get to the mess. I mean, you're done when you're done, and this is going to be like it's good to have a vast view of this work. That's not about being done. So even if you do sort of get done with one thing, one thing, there's not just one thing and then another independent thing. All these different patterns or places of unfinished business, they're all interrelated anyway. So it's a kind of an ongoing process. There's really, I don't think there's, we shouldn't like plan for a quick end to, to, the, to, to the work. So I think it's a good point which you, you made that you know the patterns can take a long time because one thing maybe this is what you're talking about there's a tendency to want to get to the bottom of things really fast and that can be a real problem uh, obstacle is that we do that you know we turn to okay you find a quiet room you lie down okay take me <laughs> which that's not necessarily bad but if in that attitude is and then I'll be done 
then, then it's a setup, you know, that, that somehow we think, okay, I'll open to this once and for all, and then it'll be done. That we really want to take a vast view that we're willing to do this work because the intimacy is good. Just that work itself is very uh, healing and beautiful, whether we ever get to the end of it or not. It's, uh, it feels appropriate and good. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up, Tom. So we'll take a very short moment to let go of the words. I'm just feeling some gratitude for being here together. And thanks everyone for coming tonight. I'd just like to remind people that I've Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.